Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week on the podcast, reporter Jacob Solis sits down with presidential hopeful Andrew Yang to talk about his freedom dividend, nuclear and alternative energies, gambling and prostitution in the state, and more. In the second segment of the show, I interview Dr. Karen Gedney at the KUNR Studios about her book, 30 Years Behind Bars, which recounts her time being a doctor with the Nevada prison system. And at the end of the show, I give Megan a little quiz about 2020 presidential candidates with some fun facts. Hopefully you guys learn a little bit about them. But first, let's hear a few indie stories that we broadcast this week by our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Originally reported by Shannon Miller, two lawmakers who were appointed to fill unexpected vacancies during the 2019 session say they will not run for the seats in 2020. Democratic Assemblyman Greg Smith says he will not seek re-election because, quote, life is short and he did not want to have to spend every other year campaigning. Smith was appointed by the Washoe County Commission in March after former Assemblyman Mike Sprinkle resigned amid sexual harassment allegations. From Southern Nevada, Democratic Senator Marsha Washington, whom Clark County Commissioners appointed to serve the remainder of the former Senator Majority Leader Kelvin Atkinson's term after he resigned, says she will also not run for re-election. Washington said at the time of her appointment and in an email to the Nevada Independent, she did not intend to keep the seat. Atkinson's term would have ended in 2020. Originally reported by Michelle Rendells, Governor Steve Sisolak has appointed former gold mining company executive and current cabinet member Michael Brown to lead the governor's office of economic development. Brown's appointment comes after the position was vacant and filled by an interim director for nearly seven months. The agency has pushed new and pending applications from businesses for tax incentives, the corporate perk the office is perhaps best known for. And Sisolak has expressed his interest in rethinking the incentives the state offers to attract companies. Prior to joining Sisolak's cabinet and overseeing 12 state agencies as the director of the state's Department of Business and Industry, Brown had served as president of Barrick Gold USA. He also served for eight years in President Ronald Reagan's administration as special assistant to the director of the United States Mint at the U.S. Treasury Department. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. Joining me today is entrepreneur and Democratic candidate for president, Andrew Yang. Mr. Yang, thank you for joining us on Indie Matters today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to get into some Nevada-specific questions in a minute here, but I want to start with what's become a hallmark of your campaign specifically, and that's a pairing of automation and universal basic income, or UBI. Uh, so in a campaign stop here in April, you talked about Las Vegas as being ground zero for the impacts of automation. And you've also talked about your freedom dividend. It's a really big part of your campaign, and it's $1,000 a month. For every American adult, that's right. That's right. So let's talk about how these two things intersect. How does the freedom dividend address automation and, and the ongoing effects of automation in America? First, I uh, just want to say thank you for your reporting on automation here in Nevada, because it is ground zero. This is the number one state out of all 50 in terms of the impact of technology on the workforce. And people here in the state see it around them every day. You're losing hospitality and casino jobs to things like robot bartenders. The major industries here in the state are retail gaming, call centers, transportation, hospitality, things that, frankly, 
are very, very subject to automation, which is why you are the number one ranked state. And it's happening before our eyes right now. My freedom dividend of $1,000 a month would help everyone here in Nevada and around the country make a more meaningful transition during this fourth industrial revolution that we're in the midst of. Because if you can imagine an MGM employee who's getting an extra $1,000 a month, all of a sudden, they're less stressed out, they have room to breathe, they can start making some investments or savings. And during that time, then, if their job becomes subject to automation over the coming weeks and months, despite our best efforts, then it won't be an existential crisis. They won't be going home to an apartment that they're not even sure they can pay rent on the following month. And then to the extent that they want to pursue a different opportunity, maybe um, switch fields or go back to school uh, or even start something creative or entrepreneurial, they'll be much better situated to do so. And if you can imagine listening to this right now, you got an extra thousand dollars a month. Uh, that helps us all make better transitions. Okay, so part of how this works is obviously everyone gets a thousand dollars a month. So it stands to reason, possibly, that those in the middle class and those who are richer stand to gain the most because they may not need that thousand dollars. How would the freedom dividend interact with existing welfare systems, and how do the poorest Americans benefit from this plan? Well, by the numbers, $12,000 a year is actually much more impactful if you're making, let's say, $24,000 a year than $90,000 a year. Because if you're making $24,000 a year, it's literally a 50% raise, um, whereas $90,000, it's more like a 10% raise. And this is not speculative. There's one state that's had a dividend in place for almost 40 years. That state is Alaska. Everyone there gets between one and $2,000 a year in oil money. And it has decreased income inequality in Alaska over these years. They pay for it with oil money. What I'm saying is that technology is the oil of the 21st century. Now, you're asking how it's going to interact with our existing programs. I would be the last person that would ever try and take anything away from Americans. The freedom dividend would be universal and opt-in, and it's there for everyone. But if you do decide to opt-in, you would be choosing to forego certain cash and cash-like benefits from some existing programs, not Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security or housing benefits, but things that are actually trying to put buying power into your hands uh, for things like food would be supplemented by the freedom dividend. And you talked a little bit about how you're going to pay for this. It's a value-added tax. And so some people have criticized that as a regressive tax because it's a sales tax. How, how do you square this circle, right, that if the freedom dividend is supposed to reduce economic inequality, why do you have a regressive tax paying for it? Well, there's a joke that says, why did you rob the bank? Uh, because that's where the money was. We have to look around and say, where's the money going today? Amazon is a trillion-dollar tech company soaking up $20 billion in business, closing 30% of America's stores and malls uh, right now. And the most common job in the entire country is working as a retail clerk. The average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making between 9 and $10 an hour. So the question is, how can you have a system that allows a trillion-dollar tech company like Amazon to pay less in taxes than you or me or anyone listening to this? So we have to put a mechanism in place that actually gets us our fair share of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile. would generate hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue. And you're right that my plan to get this hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue is a value-added tax, which has been demonstrated to be effective in a host of other developed countries. But you can actually tailor a value-added tax so that it falls more heavily on, let's say, luxury goods like yachts and is less or even exempts things like diapers or milk. 
so my plan, putting $1,000 a month in everyone's hands, will increase the buying power of the bottom 94% of Americans. The problem is that our economy is so out of whack that those top 6% are making incredible sums of money that if we get our fair share into our hands, it will actually build a trickle-up economy and a virtuous cycle. If I were to put $1,000 a month into Jeff Bezos' bank account, it would have zero economic impact. <laughs> they wouldn't even notice. But if you put $1,000 a month into the hands of someone listening to this right now, 78% of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Almost half of us can't afford an unexpected $400 bill. That $1,000 will almost purely go back into the regional economy. And that's how we actually make an economy that revolves around our own needs and values instead of serving these phantom GDP numbers and these corporate profits that have no relationship with our way of life. So shifting gears a lot here, let's talk about nuclear energy. Flat out, first off, do you commit to not funding a nuclear waste repository at Yucca Mountain if you're elected president? I think that nuclear waste is a national problem and should not be saddled uh, with the people here in Nevada. Uh, I think that if we're going to move towards sustainable energy uh, resources, we can't rule out nuclear energy, but we should not have nuclear waste repositories be in a particular locality uh, that's not being managed at the government level and then stick local, state, or muni- municipalities with the bill. Okay, so sticking with nuclear energy here, you've talked a lot about thorium and how thorium-based uh, molten salt reactors may be a solution to the nation's energy woes in the future. Now, specifically speaking, why is thorium going to be the solution versus something like, well, existing uranium reactors or, or even other renewable energy methods like solar or wind? We're facing a crisis where climate change is concerned. And again, uh, Nevada will be ground zero because as our water supply has problems and the climate heats up, uh, Nevada will be bearing the brunt of it. So we have to move towards renewable energy sources of all kinds. Wind, solar has enormous potential. Uh, But if you look at these thorium nuclear reactors, they have the potential to be part of the solution and thorium is not intrinsically radioactive. You can't make weapons out of it. It degrades much more quickly than uranium. There are many advantages to this next generation type of reactor that as a country we should be investing in fully because it can be part of a much more sustainable energy future for all of us. So sticking with Nevada issues here, earlier this year, the Department of Justice issued an opinion saying the Wire Act applies to all forms of gambling that cross state lines. So including online gambling and not just sports betting. Do you agree with that and why? And are there other areas of gambling that the federal government should be regulating? (laughs) No, it's interesting. When I go around the country, you used to think that gambling was only legal in uh, Nevada. But then I've been traveling around the country for the last number of years as the head of a nonprofit I started called Venture for America. And it's staggering how many casinos there are all over the country. Like if you go to downtown New Orleans or Baltimore or outside Philly uh, or Cleveland, there's a freaking casino smack dab in each one of them. So at, at this point, it's almost the case that we have like a national uh, gambling regime. I think sports betting is its own unique animal um, because because it, it, it's such like a popular activity that goes on in different forms, uh, almost irregardless of the um, the regulations involved. Okay. So sticking with Nevada issues here, some presidential candidates have faced questions here from community members about sex work. Do you think sex work should be decriminalized? 
I would be open to examining decriminalizing sex work if there were not economic deprivation that was driving people into the industry. So if you can imagine a society where everyone's getting $1,000 a month, this goes further for women who often are starting with a lower level of savings or income. And so if we could look at ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, look, people are not going into the sex industry because of need, because of economic deprivation, because of exploitation, then I think decriminalizing it um, would be something I'd at least be open to exploring. On the subject, in 2018, Congress passed FOSTA-SESTA, which was aimed at combating sex trafficking in part by regulating the Internet. Do you think that FOSTA-SESTA was the right way to address sex trafficking? Well, whatever we're doing uh, with sex trafficking, we have to do much, much more um, because it's this hidden scourge that is going on in our communities uh, around uh, the country and certainly trying to clamp down on internet, uh, the internet facilitation of sex, tra- of sex trafficking and human trafficking is a big part of the puzzle. But when I've been in communities around the country, I've been shocked by how many people have been directly impacted by this. And one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that you have to have boots on the ground to actually solve the problems where they are. And we need to rely more on communities to help us unearth where these trafficking activities are, are being conducted from, because it's not just a Nevada problem. It's a U.S. problem. It's a global problem, actually. You've also said that you want to legalize marijuana at the federal level. If that happens, how do you want to see the industry regulated? To me, it's overdue that we legalize marijuana at the federal level. And we all know that right now our administration of the laws tends to be highly uneven and racist uh, in real life. So I would not just make marijuana legal. I would pardon everyone who's in federal prison for a nonviolent marijuana-related crime. I would high-five them all on the way out of jail on April 20th, 2021. To me, if you're the president, why are you always pardoning these weird, rich, like well-connected types? You should be pardoning people who shouldn't be in jail in the first place. So I think being legal is not the same as being completely unregulated. I mean, tobacco is legal, but you can't sell it on school grounds. Uh, You know, there are various restrictions. So I think marijuana should be approached in a very similar way. I would even go a step further and say that we need to decriminalize opiates for personal use because right now we have this opiate addiction plague that's killing eight Americans an hour. And a lot of that was caused by government negligence. We allowed Purdue Pharma to dispense millions of OxyContin prescriptions, got millions of Americans hooked, and now those addicts are now shifting to heroin and fentanyl because they're cheaper and uh, more accessible than Oxy, perversely enough. And so this is a systemic failing, and we have to respond to it in that way and not say this is on you, the individual citizens of the country. So if you are caught with opiates for personal use, we'll take the drugs away from you, but we will refer you to a counseling center and treatment center. Uh, We will not send you to a prison cell. And then we should invest in safe consumption sites and safe injection sites around the country because they save lives. So Nevada in particular has been reckoning with the consequences of a a marijuana regulatory system that had holes in it. And so we see things like licensing having problems years down the line. In what ways is the federal government equipped or ill-equipped to deal with the sort of sudden legalization of marijuana? I met with a dispensary here in, in Las Vegas, and what they said to me is that their main problem is access to financing, because right now there are various financial regs that 
um, restrict the way that they can finance their operations, which as someone who's run a business, I'd be very, very frustrated by. So they were doing a lot of transacting in cash, <laughs> which, which seems like not the ideal answer for just about anyone. And when I talked to them about what federal uh, legalization would mean, what they said is, look, that would be very positive for them on some levels because it would enable them to um, ship marijuana across state lines, which apparently now there are all of these incentives where you produce it in the state that you're trying to market to. And if you it were to be uh, legalized at a national level, then you could manufacture it here in Las Vegas and then ship it to Arizona or ship it to, to New Mexico. As someone who's run a business, uh, I would be very, very frustrated if there was a hodgepodge of regulations that made it so that I had to figure out what I was doing in each state. We have to clean that up um, for the dispensaries and businesses around the country. And to the extent the government's not equipped to do that, we need to get it right. Okay, switching gears again, uh, Nevada's in the West, obviously. Um, So Western states have been grappling with the effects of climate change for a long time now, but more so in the last five years, especially what we see with, say, fires and wildfires. Yeah. Uh, What more should the federal government be doing to support the West on these issues? And this, to me, is a a sign of just how behind the curve we are. About 10% of our national forest lands are being properly maintained in terms of keeping them from becoming fire hazards. And as climate change has warmed the brush, it has essentially turned our national forests into a giant tinderbox. And what have we done? Essentially nothing. We have like an existing U.S. Forest Service that is not equipped to manage the forest lands uh, in an adequate way. And so now you literally have rolling blackouts in California because they're trying to keep the fires under control. If you have a government, then it needs to say, look, we need to be setting off controlled fires in these national forests in order to try and keep them from becoming giant fire hazards when uh, the uh, season starts becoming warmer and drier. To me, the fact that we're only maintaining 10% or so of our forest lands uh, in an adequate way just shows that our government needs to staff up very dramatically and adopt, in some cases, much more aggressive measures that could include uh, more extensive use of technology. And what I'm imagining is you could have various uh, sensors in different parts of the forest land. You could have drones that are equipped with uh, fire retardants uh, and various things. But we literally need to militarize our management of the forest lands or we'll be faced with these rampant wildfires every single year. Okay, so that'll do it for the serious questions. We're asking every presidential candidate who comes on this podcast a couple of fun questions, because we like to keep it fun. So first off, please name, and and this will sound weird, but you'll get it afterward. Please name in order the first four early nominating states. You kidding? Uh, I stare at this all day long. It's Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, in that order. Oh, thank you very much. Some people like to forget that Nevada comes third. No, people screw that up all the time. Sometimes I do the pop quiz on people. I'm like, what's the order of states? And they, for some reason, think South Carolina comes before you all, but they do not. (laughs) It's a shame. That's a crying shame. All right. Now, second question. If you were a casino game, what casino game would you be? I would definitely be craps because it involves rolling dice and I have many fond childhood memories of rolling dice from my days playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games. <laughs> An excellent answer. All right. And, and last but not least, please name a movie with a scene t- that takes place in Nevada that is your favorite Nevada movie. Wow. I mean, this is going to be uncreative, but the first thing that popped into my mind is Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve and that stuff, um, which I feel a little bad about because it's probably overused. So let me think of an alternative 
what's another fun Nevada movie that had some good stuff? All, all the things that come to my mind are like gambling or mob related. It's our own, it's our own crime. We, we've done this to ourselves. Uh, I mean, you know, you guys uh, are very good at what you're good at. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Well, that's it for our interview. Thank you for joining us today. Andrew Yang, candidate for president. It is great to be here and not for a bachelor party. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so I am here with Dr. Karen Gedney. How's it going? Great. Good. Thank you, Joey. Yeah, and so you have written a book called 30 Years Behind Bars, and it it takes place in a Nevada prison system. Can you kind of explain to me what the book's about and what inspired you to write it? Well, I was placed in the prison system in 1987 to do a four-year payback for a scholarship that I had received to go to medical school, and I knew that I would end up having to work in a place that did not have a doctor. And they put me in prison. It was Northern Nevada Correctional Center, which is a male medium security prison on the outskirts of Carson City. And I, after all sorts of uh, drama and trauma, I decided to stay, turned it into a 30-year career. And when I left, I realized that I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do in the next phase in life, but I really felt that I needed to write my memoir when you were dealing with prisoners, did you see a lot of mental health issues? What were the major mental health issues that you did see in the prison? Lots of mental health issues. In fact, the largest mental health facility in this country is supposedly L.A. County Jail now. Mm-hmm. But what I saw was you have the truly mentally ill in terms of true schizophrenics, true manic depressives that get into trouble because of their – Well, their mental health. They don't think normally. Mm -hmm. You have a tremendous amount of individuals with anger issues, impulse control disorders. Addiction is considered really a mental illness. A substance abuse changes the brain. I would say that 90% of the guys coming in are addicted to something. So would you say that medical care in prisons was up to par for what the prisoners needed? No. No, that's, that's a constant uphill battle a constant uphill battle, but they get significantly better care than if you're homeless and mentally ill on a street, Mm -hmm. significantly better. Do you feel the goal of the policymakers here in Nevada and the the prison officials during your time that you worked there was, was punishment or correction? Well, when I started and watched the years go by, it had a lot to do with who was in a leadership position. I saw certain leaders who were far more oriented to programs and uh, restitution and making sure these guys left less of a risk. And then I saw the majority of leadership where they were predominantly interested in security and didn't want to take any risks and did not look at their position as returning that citizen that individual back into society, less of a risk. They were concerned with let's make sure they don't kill each other on the inside or staff, and when they leave, it's someone else's problem. And I think that recently the it's changing, and I think a bunch of that is changing because social media has made prisons come out from behind the curtain, you know, with the TED Talks, the different things on social media that expose the public to, wait a second, 
What are we really doing in prisons with solitary, where we put people in prison for years and years and years, which is one of the worst tortures for a human being to be in solitary that amount of years? Mm. And then what are we really doing? They come in with issues and then we make their lives even more miserable and we don't really push them in the right direction. Then we just open the door and kick them out. And I think a lot of people are scratching their head thinking, mm, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. What, what changes would you make to improve that process, just the, the inmates coming and going? And, and well, the biggest thing is I believe in prevention, that they don't even end up there in the first place. We know that the mentally ill bounce into the prison. Those people should be taken care of before they end up in there. We know that people with addictions spin out of control and then make poor choices. That has to be addressed. Kids that have parents who have been generations in criminal systems and have a criminal mindset, those children need to be exposed to mentors in the outside world that are on the other side of the line. So everything to do with prevention there are a lot of predatory bail bond practices that put the lower socioeconomic group at risk for spinning out into the – they where they can't make the bail. So then they plead to the felony just so they can get out of jail where they can take care of the family. Then they have a felony record. There are all these different things that can be affected when they leave prison on parole. They can get into trouble by violations. They're, where they're not actually doing something illegal, they just are violating a parole, like you didn't report, you didn't do this, you didn't jump through that house, whatever, and then they spin off back. Those things are slowly changing. On the inside, they need to absolutely look at every individual as an individual because they are very, very different. If you treat them all the same, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And everyone that comes in needs to be assessed. What do they really need? Is it medical, psych, emotional, spiritual, academic, whatever it is, they, get, they have the opportunities. You can't force them. But you can do the incentives like carrots. Like, and they have certain carrots in place. You go to – you don't have a high school degree. You get a high school diploma in the prison. You get 90 days off your sentence. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. Those incentives should be always there. It's like the outside world. You do something good, you get recognized or something back. Do you, do you think that the private prisons are doing a better job at reforming prisoners than the state prisons? Depends on what state you're talking about. How about Nevada? <laughs> uh, no, Nevada has failed with private prisons. I saw them fail in Ely. I saw them fail with the women's prison. So they failed both times. Mm -hmm. Since, since many inmates eventually uh, will, will be out of prison, um, what do you think would be the best way to get them ready for, for the outside world? The best way would be the minute they step into the prison to already start getting them ready to leave. Mm -hmm. And they are just – I've been told that in 2017, the state legislature um, basically told the prisons and parole and probation – you guys have to work together. They used to be, for the most part, siloed, right, two different institutions, but they share the same people and they just spin around, go around in a circle. And the legislators are like, mm, we really need to do something about recidivism. Nevada's recidivism rate, according to the little um, information on the internet, is about 28 percent. But that's close to one in three bounce back. 
And that's probably disingenuous because a lot of these guys go to a different state, right? And if they end up there, that counts on their recidivism, not ours. But considering if one out of three are bouncing back in, how do you reduce that? When they come out, they have to have certain things in place. The biggest thing is they need true legitimate identification. Many of them don't have that. And how do you get anywhere in the outside world now if you don't have ID? Mm -hmm. They don't have anywhere to go in terms of housing. And as everybody knows in Reno, the housing's really getting pretty dicey if you had to pay rent and you don't have any money and you're starting all over again. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole issue of getting a job. If you are a formerly incarcerated person and you have to let them know that, then many people right away are like, uh, no, no thanks, go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But there are different things that the state could do and has done. There's the Northern Nevada Transitional Housing Unit, which is a great unit. TMCC is doing sort of prototype programs where they help guys get certification in jobs. So that helps them get into jobs. There are nonprofits that are transitional housing, but there's only a small amount of beds compared to the need. So with – with something as crucial as prison reform and, and, and a new prison director is going to be chosen soon, right? Um, wh- what are your hopes for that person and what qualifications do you think that like Governor Sisolak should be looking for in that, in that director? Because I've lived through 10 different prison directors and the most effective prison director for Nevada will be someone who is oriented to work with the other agencies in a strategic plan – that will reduce these men from coming back to prison. And that means assessing what their needs are, what their, where their holes are, and making sure that happens on the inside and hook them to the outside. The other thing is if you can find someone on the inside who really knows the system and who thinks like that, this is many times better than an outsider if – if they are backed by the best people. So is, is there anything else that I didn't get to ask you wanted to talk about with the Nevada prison system before we wrap up? If people want to see the prison through the eyes of someone who spent 30 years behind bars was someone who was as naive as they are, and yet you're in a spot where you are in a position where you can protect or harm or play the game or go against the stream, what do you do and and what ultimately happens and how would you make it through 30 years? And if people are interested in that type of story, then they should take a look at my book, 30 Years Behind Bars. Well, great. Dr. Getty, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast this week. Well, thank you, Joey. All right, cool. So we are at the the last segment of the podcast, and I am joined by our 2020 lead reporter, Megan Messerly. Megan, how's it going? It's going great, Joey. How are you? I'm doing well. And I thought, you know, for this fun last segment, I wanted to to do a little quiz uh, with you. And uh, don't worry, they're all true or false. You have a 50-50 shot on each of these questions. And it's on the candidates that have run for president. Excellent. I'm I'm very excited. I'm I'm if I get worse than fifty percent, I, I think I lose my tile, title as lead twenty twenty reporters. <laughs> I guess I guess we'll see what happens. But these uh, are all right. I've been I've been promised these are fun factoids, right? Not not these things fu- that the election is going to make or break over. I would be very surprised if the election <laughs> would make was make it was made or 
broken because of these facts. Okay, great. So are you, are you ready? There's ten questions. I am so ready. All right, ten questions, all true or false. True or false. Tom Steyer has a degree in horticulture from Yale. Oh, gosh. You know, I can't remember if he went to Yale or... I feel like he went to Yale or Harvard. I'm going to say... I don't know. It just seems so random, horticulture. I feel like it has to be true. Let's go with true. It is false. <laughs> oh, no! Darn! Did he, go to, did he go to Yale? He did. He went to Yale and Harvard. Okay. So I was right on that. Okay. You were right on that, yes. What was his degree in? Uh, I think law. <laughs> oh, okay. That's less exciting. Um, horticulture just seemed, like, fun and interesting, but... Yes. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> All right. Second one. John Delaney once said that his last online purchase was biking shorts. I don't know. These all sound so weird that I feel like they have to be true. I feel like this one, though, really could be true. That seems like a John Delaney thing to do. I'm going to go with true. It is true. <laughs> okay, great. I'm glad to know. <laughs> all right, you're one and in, one in two. <laughs> okay. Andrew Yang's favorite song to sing in the car is Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Hmm... I don't know. I feel like I, I don't know what his favorite song would be, but I, I I don't know that that I don't know that that would be his favorite song. Would it be? I'm gonna go with false. It's true. Oh darn! <laughs> I'm not doing very well. <laughs> That's all right. We still have a couple questions to get through. Okay. All right. Kamala Harris's favorite comfort food is nacho cheese Doritos. And I should know this, too, because it was, like, a big thing on the internet a few months ago when all of them were reporting, like, their favorite foods. And I all I remember is that, like, I think Cory Booker's favorite comfort food was veggies. And people were like, what kind? I mean, he's vegan, but, like, what kind of a comfort food is veggies? Who's, who's, like, gnawing on some carrots and celery going, mmm, like, I, I'm I love so carrots. cozy. I wouldn't call it a comfort food, though. But is it a comfort food, you know? Anyways, Probably not. Uh, nacho cheese. I just, I just don't remember that being her answer. I feel like I would have remembered if it was nacho cheese. I feel like it was something else. I'm going to say false and it's going to be true. I'm going to go with false. It's true. No! Oh my (laughs) gosh! I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at this. (laughs) I I mean, I got some pretty tough questions here. I should have known that one too. (laughs) Tulsi Gabbard's parents own a coffee farm. I mean, she's from Hawaii and coffee is grown in Hawaii. I don't know. This could be a trick. I'm going to go with true. <laughs> it's false. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't yeah. do this. I think I've already lost my title. I'm, sorry, everyone. I'm, I'm no longer covering the 2020 election. <laughs> um, Joe Biden's first pair of aviator sunglasses was given to him by Pennsylvania Senator Joseph S. Clark in 1962. 1962. I mean, this just seems so, so specific. But I, I feel like I feel like maybe going through these, you were like you took a fact that was like kind of true and then just changed the name, so it seems like it's true, but it's not true. So I can't even try to like. Out, uh, <laughs> gosh, well, Joe Biden does love his aviators. Has he been wearing aviators since 1962? I don't know. I'm gonna go with. It's gonna be the opposite of whatever I say. Let's go with false. You are correct. It is Ah, thank goodness. Let's I totally play. made that up. <laughs> you made the entire thing up. All right. Pete Buttigieg has a love for claw machines. Yes, this is absolutely true. There was actually a fantastic lead and a story written about him a few years ago uh, about his affinity for claw machines, which I can totally <laughs> identify with myself. I'm actually, I would consider myself somewhat of a claw machine expert 
myself. But yes, well, this if, is true. If I, I know this. If I ever need a stuffed animal, I know who to come to now. <laughs> yeah, I, I when I was a kid, we would go to Dave and Buster's, and we we're just like pulling the stuffed machine, you know, just like one after another, <laughs> handing them out to children everywhere. It was great. Alrighty, um, I might pronounce this word wrong, but okay. Br- Bernie Sanders is a licensed sommelier. Oh, sommelier. Yes. Sommelier. Um, you know, I don't know. He doesn't seem like, I don't know. He, he doesn't seem like he'd be a licensed sommelier type. You know, he's like a, he's like a man of the people, not a, you know, mm, this has notes of a pear and whiskey. You know, I just can't <laughs> imagine him sitting around doing that. Um, I'm going to go with false. It is false. Correct. Okay, good. Good. Thank goodness. See, I know something. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wayne Messam was a wide receiver for Florida State Seminoles. Gosh, I don't know that much about Wayne Messam, other than I think he's been to Nevada maybe all of once this cycle. Um, I'm going to go with true. It is true. Okay, cool. I thought he had some like football background in there, so wasn't totally off base. All right, and the last one. Dead Kennedy's frontman and punk musician Jello Bifra attempted to run for president in 2000. What? <laughs> I said what? candidates. I didn't say what year. I know. <laughs> in 2000? Gosh, I don't know. I'll go with true. It is true. He attempted okay. to run for, for the Green Party, and he lost to Ralph Nader. Wow. What do you know? What do you know? You learn new things every day. Wait, so yeah. how did I do? You did uh, 50%. Okay, so does that? So I was saying fifty percent, and then I I get to keep my title. So I think if I'm at fifty percent, I get to stay you get to lead political title. reporter. <laughs> if I had gotten one more wrong, wow, we would have had to. <laughs> you'd be the new political reporter, Joey. Oh boy, <laughs> we would have had to. We would have had. Well, hey, look, I know all these facts about. Uh, about <laughs> yeah, I know what Andy Yang's song is. <laughs> you know, you know everything you need to know to cover the campaign. All right, Megan. So I think you get to keep your title as lead 2020 reporter for now, uh, but maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll do some more quizzes in the future. Maybe we'll involve uh, John and Elizabeth as well. Oh, gosh. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for being on. All right. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Andrew Yang for joining us this week, and I'd also like to thank Dr. Karen Gedney and Megan for chatting with me as well. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you can be the first to hear our new episodes as we interview more 2020 candidates moving forward. If you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can email me at joey at com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at com. As always, our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music on Bandcamp or Spotify. We'd also like to thank KUNR for letting us use their studios this week to interview Dr. Gedney. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>